now for the scripture reading. We have Acts 13, sorry, 13, 38 through 52. And it says, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust of their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with the joy and with the Holy Spirit. All right, thank you. All right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whoever you are, whenever you're watching this, I'm glad you could join us. Um, so uh, I guess first I want to reiterate some of the things I talked about last week a little bit. Um, uh, it has to do with our, our plan to reopen uh, and gather people in here again. And so we have a, a three-step process that I will remind you and lay out for you. And we're going to be putting this sort of out out there this week, I'll make a video explaining this in like, like a minute long video for you to look at and reference and remember and share with other people so that they will know as well. But basically step one is already in motion, although it doesn't feel any different. Um, uh, phase one is basically house churches gathering with us on our Thursday night services um, to record with us. And we have a small showing of a house church here tonight and last week we had a small showing. Um, apparently the week I didn't speak, the week that Lori Beth spoke, we had, we had a big crowd for the house church here spread out, of course. But that house church was all here. And so we're going to be gathering, you know, uh, if you're a part of a house church, if you're not, this is a great incentive to go. Um, but yeah, every week there's going to be a different house church here. Phase two um, is from November, um, the very first week of November until mid-December. Uh, we're going to have open attendance for everyone who wants to attend um, up to 50 people. Um, that is less than 25% capacity. We're going to work our way eventually up to 25% capacity and then up from there, um, making sure everything is manageable and safe. Um, and so you'll RSVP for that. And we're asking people, if you RSVP for those, those November services, that's going to be like, I guess um, that part of the site is going to be up soon for you to RSVP. Um, we're asking that you not do like multiple weeks in a row, like give other people a chance to like come and worship with us. So, you know, kind of take your turn, take your rotation. Um, and there's not going to be childcare there yet. However, in mid-December, We'll have a date for you, a specific date for you that will be in a later announcement. Um, we are going to move this to Sunday morning. We're going to do this live. We're going to live stream on the internet 
and we are going to have people here, and childcare is going to be open, We Watermark is going to be open, and we're going to try to get to 25% when we can. Um, and so we're moving slow, and, uh, and so far uh, it's been a long year, and I want to thank you all uh, for pushing through with us. It's been hard on every one of us. Um, but we've been able to make some improvements on the building, and I can't wait for you guys to like come out and, and see, and, uh, and honestly just to catch up. So um, that's our plan. Um, I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer, and then this morning we're going to be talking about, um, actually, we're talking about Christian ethics. So that's our topic this evening, and I'm going to talk about why, and then we're going to jump into that. So let's pray and sort of set the tone, um, and then uh, we'll jump into Acts 13. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for everyone who is um, tuning in to hear this, everyone who is present to hear this. Um, I pray that you would be with them, that you would uh, make yourself known to them, that you would comfort them, bring them healing wherever they need healing and encouragement where they need encouragement. Join them in their joy, wherever, whatever they are experiencing. Um, I pray that uh, you would be there with them in that. Um, I lift up uh, um, those who are uh, in need of, of connection or in need of in need of money, in need of, of whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would find some way um, to guide us to them so that we can um, be your presence in their life, your faithful presence there in the midst of whatever is going on. I pray that right now as we uh, open your word, as we, as we talk about these concepts, as we um, read the writings of these ancient followers of yours that, that we are descended from, I pray that you would give us clear vision, give us fresh vision, um, Inspire us. Help us to see things that we haven't seen before. Help us to collectively continue crawling towards you together uh, as one people. Um, pray all of this in your name. Amen. Okay, so what has just happened in Acts 13, um, let me uh, refresh her in case you don't know what's going on. They're in the synagogue. The way that they do their missions work is they go to a new city, um, and the first thing they do is they go to the synagogue. And when they go to the synagogue, they, they always start off by preaching the message to the Jews, by retelling them their story and completing it through the line of Jesus. It has always just sort of ended with the prophets and the persecution, but now it moves into um, what they believe is God's rest- great restoration of Israel and, and calling his people back together under a new way of viewing the temple, a new way of viewing the law, a new way of viewing God's people, um, and understanding a, a new way of understanding their Messianic king, their Davidic king. It's Jesus. And so they, they gathered here in Acts uh, 13, and they preached this message to the Jewish people. Now, we talked about this when Peter did it. They're all kind of doing the same thing. Peter did this. Um, Paul and Barnabas are doing this here. This will happen over and over and over again. And so I don't need to kind of preach the same message every time we get into this passage. I'd like to, every time we get here, sort of pull out another aspect of, of how they're thinking and what they're doing in their ministry. Um, this is going to happen again in the book of Romans. The entire book of Romans is a um, sort of a, a retelling of the story and giving a reason why um, the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel went through what they went through, what the point of it was. So, um, they enter into the synagogue and Paul tells once again the story of God's people. And Paul is a really good storyteller. And the reason he's a good storyteller is because he has this way of drawing the people into the story to see their part in it, their place in it. And when you do this, it helps people connect with the story in a way that is vital for understanding actually the message of God and the life of Jesus. 
Um, and so when he is done, I wanted to draw attention to verse 42 through 44 here. It says this, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So Paul told this story so well that the people connected with it and they wanted to hear more. They wanted to hear more about like their place in this story because the story is about them and they know they're in it. They know they're a part of it. So they want to know what comes next. And so they gather sort of week after week to hear them preach. Now, um, this raises a lot of questions because what they're doing is they're going town to town and evangelizing and telling stories, but mainly the whole point of this is evangelization. They're trying to create more converts. And like I said last week, this wasn't a normal thing you did in the ancient world. You didn't travel to different cities and tell them about your God and try to convince them to worship your God. There was no reason to do this, yet they were doing this now. So if you ask a lot of American ev uh, evangelical Christians today why evangel evangelism is important, um, they will say things like, so that, so that more people will become Christians. That's the main reason that people believe evangelism is important, so that more people will become Christians. Um, and then if you ask them, why is it important that more people become Christians? Perhaps you've never thought about this question, but if you ask people, why is it important that more people become Christians? Um, oftentimes the first answer you will get, of course, is it has to do with their eternal souls because we love people and we want to save them. We want, to, we want them to understand the salvation that God is bringing. So that's the first thing that people tend to bring up. And the second thing, even if you don't bring up the first thing, there's a second thing that is always sort of wrapped up in that. It is, the second answer usually will have something to do with what they call um, the current moral decay of society. That our evangelization is um, also an attempt to stave off moral decay in society. The more people that become Christians, we believe, we tend to believe, the better society will be. And it seems to make sense to us. And I would argue that all of this is why it's important for us to study the book of Acts because uh, when we study the book of Acts, what we realize is that those are not the reasons that the apostles are doing what they're doing. They're not talking about people's souls. They never once talk about hell. They never once talk about um, the moral decay of society. They don't point out all the problems and, and the, the pains of the world around them and say, you know what they need. They all, because of all the pain and, 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 and the disorder and, and um, all of the, the things that are wrong in society, um, I think if, 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 if more of you were Christians, if you came back to God, I think things would get better. Um, and they're actually not doing this. I'm not saying that, I'm not making a judgment call on any of this. I'm pointing out that that is not what is happening in the book of Acts. Um, Paul didn't stand up and argue for the supremacy of his religion either. He didn't stand up and say, Christianity is better and here's why. He didn't practice apologetics. He didn't, again, point to the moral decay of society and say it's because people need Jesus. And he didn't use the message of Jesus to try and solve societal problems. Um, and all of this is very fascinating. Because when you really think about it and you read the book of Acts, it's completely absent. All of that. Uh, for a lot of modern readers, this is really hard to acknowledge because a lot of the times we use the Bible for ethical instruction. This becomes a central reason that we go to the Bible. We have questions about ethics and we run a quick search for a Bible verse. Maybe you just run a Google search and then, and then you flip to your Bible app 
uh, and you look up, you either Google like Bible verses about money or greed or, um, or violence or, and we just look at particular verses and we say, okay, and we, we do what's called proof texting. We look for a verse and we look at what that verse says because it mentions this topic and then we look at and we say, okay, so it says right here that this is the correct thing to do. And then we close the Bible and then we do it. In other words, we use the Bible, and I've heard Christians take the Bible and use it as an acronym, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. That is not what anyone in the New Testament is doing. So, uh, what I want to do this morning is to have a bit of a primer on Christian ethics, and this is going to come back to the storytelling that Paul and Barnabas are doing in the synagogues that they go to. Uh, and so as I talk about Christian ethics, I'm going to try to sort of paint a picture for you that when I, when I first started um, opening up to the idea of like what the Bible is actually for and how Christian ethics are to function, it changed everything for me. Um, and what you will find is by the time I'm done here, I think you'll understand why there are so many instances of Paul going into places and telling the story of God, Okay. Um, and so we're going to have a crash course here on, on, on ethics, uh, and this is actually something I'm actually working on because we have a, a leadership class that we do here at Watermark. If you're like a, if you, if you serve in leadership in any capacity at all, um, then we gather, you know, a few times a quarter and we teach different classes and one of them I'm going to be teaching is, um, the church and, um, sort of, sort of our interactions with culture how we are to do this. And I'm teaching that next week, so it is a good thing to do to prepare for that is preach a sermon on this because it connects with it. Now, we have questions about how we are to live. We have questions about why we are to live in those ways. Why do we feel uh, the way that we do as Christians about divorce, about dishonesty, about big topics like abortion? Like, why do we feel the way we do about these things? And it's important because when we talk about being the church, we're also talking about an ethic that we live by. And we need to talk about how we can identify that, that ethic, whatever that ethic is. How do we determine what that is, what the right thing is to do, and align with it? Um, And so we're going to do some of that this morning. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to point out that ethics are incredibly confusing. We're going away from the temple. I'll just put a generic backdrop. Okay, now, um, ethics are confusing. Um... If you've been here long enough, you've heard me talk about the work that my brother does. He is, uh, he's one year older than me, and he, uh, he lives in, he, he has a wife and, and five boys, and they live in the jungles of Indonesia. They actually just had a girl, their first one. Um, and um, I don't know if he's trying to start a football team or what. But they, uh, they live in the jungles of Indonesia, in West Papua, deep high in the mountains. And one of the most fascinating things that, that I learn about this tribe that he lives with um, is the differences in ethics. Wildly different. Even when um, some of them became Christians and stuff because of some of the missions work they do. They do all kinds of work and missions work and some of it as well. Um, the ethical differences between them and us are, are fascinating and they're stark. For instance, um, we have uh, in our culture a lot of rules, particularly about dress and this idea of modesty, of how we should present our bodies in public. Um, and in our minds, they're universal, that there's certain parts of our body we should cover and certain parts um, are okay to show and blah, blah, blah. We have, we have all these sort of things that, that we do. And I was fascinated to learn that in the culture in which he's living, in the jungles there, 
Um, women, for instance, um, the most vital part on women to cover on their bodies is the small of their back. They wear something right there to cover the small of their back, just above their butt. Um, and to uncover the small of your back as a woman would be absolutely scandalous. And that is fascinating because there's no other part of their body that they, that they have to cover. Men, also, completely naked except for the very end of their genitalia. So like there's the, the cultural idea of modesty is, is, is completely different uh, in their culture. And a lot of times, and the reason I bring this up is because a lot of times we feel the need to claim that the ethic that guides us should be free from historical relativity, re- relativity and free from cultural context, that, that it should be something that is free-floating, that is based upon unchanging principles, that, that is sanctioned by, by the divine, and that we can be sure of these principles in some way. And that's what we want. That's what we are looking for. Because otherwise, what are we to do? How are we to live if we can't even get our baseline that this is right and has always been right? Um, a lot of us feel that there, that there was some time in history that somehow was free of moral ambiguity. That there was a time, a point in history when everyone knew what was right and knew what was wrong. And we need to get back to that. Um, and when these principles were accepted. And, and so the fact is, if there isn't, if every generation is sort of wrestling with this, then how are we to come up with the ethics by which we will live? I mean... Let me, let me point some stuff out to you. Um, okay, so I already talked about my brother. This is um, my brother and his wife. There's one of their sons right there with them. Um, and then their friends they live with. Um, okay, so there's that. There's obviously some cultural, ethical differences there. Um, did you know also, I want to throw some other stuff out there. Did you know in 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, America's largest conservative Christian denomination, was split right down the middle on the subject of the legality of abortion? Are we... Do we think it's wrong or do we think it's acceptable? And they were split on it. Now they're not split. But we tend to think that it's this universal thing that they've always thought. Um, did you know that we use the Bible to condemn slavery and it is the same Bible that slave owners used to justify slavery? Um, did you know that we use the Bible um, that was once used to establish and prop up monarchies, and we now use that same Bible to promote democracy. Did you know um, the Bible was once used to establish fiefdoms and feudal systems and all kinds of economic systems that we now use the Bible to condemn all the time? It's the same book. It's just different readers in different times and different places. What is going on? How does this work? The problem is that, that there's this underlying view that, that we have, if we, if we have this shifting moral plate beneath our feet, then we're doomed to be destroyed. We want to believe that, that we don't shape our, our ethics. We want to believe that our ethics shape us. But the fact is, if you look through history, that's not true. We tend to shape our ethics, and we tend to use whatever is at our disposal to do this, at our disposal to do this including our religion, and the Bible. And so what has happened, uh, what is it that has changed? What's happened, and how do we find this moral and ethical grounding? So I want to talk a quick crash course in ethics this morning. There are two views um, 
uh, two models of ethics that we can see as, uh, that are predominant. There's others as well, but the two predominant ones that, that are easy to place, that are most prevalent throughout history, um, are, are, are deontological and teleological. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe these for you and talk about what they mean, and maybe some of our society will make sense to you when I lay these kind of out here. I'm going to start off with, with um, deontological. The deontological view is the modern view that most people hold today. Uh, most people today do hold a deontological view of ethics, whether they realize it or not. To understand the phrase deontological, deo is the Greek word for duty, and it is a duty-based system of ethics. Now, here's what this means. Um, how does a duty-based system of ethics work? Well, it asks two simple questions. It asks, who am I, and what am I going to do? And the second question, the answer to the second question, flows from the way you answered the first question. Um, so, this means... Uh, that what you ought to do is derived from who you are. And these are the questions that it asks. And it pulls, um, it, it asks you who you are. And so you describe who you are. And it pulls all of those adjectives together that we used to define ourselves. And it forms ethics from there. Eth uh, ethics of gender and race and sexual orientation and identity and geographical location and culture. For instance, I can be described at this moment right now as a, a white, middle-class, Christian male American living in the South, and every one of these adjectives I use to describe myself, uh, society uses to define ethics for me, for myself, what I can do and what I can't do, what I should do and what I should not do. Um, so if I have a question about what am I going to do, what should I wear? Well, what am I? Um, I'm in the South, so it's going to be a little bit relaxed because I'm a Southerner, I guess, even though I grew up in Los Angeles, but I'm here now. Um, and I'm a man, so I'm, I'm um, ethically, uh, people would argue, as a man, uh, I should not wear certain things, and I should wear other things because men and women dress different, and this is the ethics by which people argue. Um, and so that is going to determine sort of what I wear uh, and what I don't wear. Um, which bathroom do I use? That's going to answer that question as well. And we have all kinds of conversations about this in public. Who do I marry? It's going to determine those as well. And as well, um, depending on like, if you switch one of these descriptors, you're going to get a different answer. For, for instance, I'm a Westerner. If you replace Westerner with Easterner, suddenly who should I marry changes. Well, I shouldn't marry. It's not about who I choose, who I love, and who I'm attracted to. It's about who my parents decide that I should marry because you get married for a different reason. And so each society is coming up with their own reasons and their own rules and their own guidelines based upon usually deontological values that we look at who are you, and I will use those information that I gathered about who you are to determine what you should do. And this tends to be how our ethics are made. So if the desire is there, is there, and it aligns with my identity, then it is my duty to fulfill the desire as my culture dictates. This is the deontological view of ethics. If I want money or sex or power or happiness, my method of getting all these things must align with who I am. Um, because I'm a Christian, there's certain ways I can't make money. Because, you know what I mean? Like, so um, I sometimes have a conversation with my wife about like, I, I think really funny thoughts sometimes and I would like to post them to social media and my wife says, you can't post that. And I'm like, why? She says, because you're a pastor. So that's deontological ethics. I'm a pastor, so there's certain things I'm not allowed to post on social media, no matter how funny they are. Um, um, there's certain kinds of like 
I, I, I don't go out in public wearing like shorts and flip-flops and stuff because I play a role. I have a job. I'm a pastor. There's certain things I, and there's certain things she doesn't do because of who she is and her role in society. So this is how sort of ethics work. Any unreasonable act, if you do something that varies from who you are, it will cause disruption. It will destroy the threads of society. For instance, if we are a Christian nation, then there are certain things that we should do. We keep prayer in public schools and we keep the Ten Commandments in the courtroom. And if you remove those things, um, that is ethically and morally wrong because deontologically, if we're a Christian nation, these are the things that we base it on. And the, the, the consequences are if you remove prayer from public schools, then, then, then there's people who believe that everything will go downhill and begin to fall apart because we're losing our identity and what makes us moral is that we're Christian. So it's a big thing, right? Like modern arguments for right and wrong are always deontological. Um, that is why so many people find it effective to look at you and say, you know, a Christian can only vote for so-and-so. We, some people find that a very a, a, a convincing argument. It's, an, it's a deontological argument. You are a Christian. Christians do this, so you can't do that, right? Um, also, a few weeks ago, um, what was it? I think it was, it was Joe Biden made his famous line that was like, um, if you vote for him you ain't black. He's making a deontological argument. It's ethically wrong because of who you are, because of the adjectives that are described to you, ascribed to you. So if you, again, replace any one of these identity factors, the answer to what must I do changes. It comes out differently. This can get very murky and very difficult. My brother, again, let's talk about my brother again. He came back from uh, Indonesia for the first time. He had been gone for eight years, living in the middle of the jungle in a moneyless society that is based upon hospitality, where whatever you have, you use to provide life for everyone else in the tribe. And he came back in exactly 2009, which was, for the first time in eight years, he's been back to society. And it was the peak of the housing crisis. And so he looks around, and there are empty houses everywhere. And at the same time, he notices that there are homeless people everywhere. And in his mind, it obviously makes ethical and moral sense that with empty houses and people with nowhere to live, you put the people in the houses. Yet every time you describe this to Americans, our deontology kicks in. We are Americans. We have a society and economic system that disrupts the system that is ethically wrong to do. Do you see? Like, we get stuck. And so sometimes you can't do the obvious thing because of who you are. Now, that's modern ethics, deontological ethics. You will see it everywhere now that I told you about it. Now, let's move on to the other one. It's called teleological. Now, um, teleological was the ancient world. Uh, it held a teleological view of ethics. Um, teleos is the word, it's a Greek word that, uh, that uh, means end, it means goal. So this is a goal-based system of ethics. It is, has nothing to do um, really, with individuals and who they are. It asks three questions. It says, who are we right now? What is our goal? And how do we get there? That is the ancient way. When you read ancient documents, this is how they are thinking. Um, and uh, the questions they ask are like, how, where are we heading? What is the good life? Like, what does it look like for us to be? What do we want to be as a people? What world do we want to build? Now, the ethical thing that we should do is we should do whatever it takes to get there. So the right thing to do at any moment can change and shift based upon 
like what your society sees as the good life. So the wise person in the ancient world would know that all people and situations are different, therefore ethics can vary, um, because not everyone, not every community wants to be the same thing. Um, if you look at Sparta, for instance, they, they, want, they wanted to be a people who were always able to win and, and, and defeat enemies in war, in battle. So the right thing, the ethical thing to do um, Saw, was towards that end. But if you go to Athens, it's a totally different story. It was about knowledge and philosophy and understanding. So the ethics changed from city to city. Um, and the wise person, again, is the person who, who would know that all people and situations are different and ethics can vary. So the best course of action is going to be the one that best aligns with both who we are now and where we are going in the future and how we get there. It asks questions about the type of people we want to be. It speaks of trajectory, of building something together. So in the ancient world, who do I Mary, that, that's a great question. Um, now, uh, let's ask questions about who, who, who do we want to be? What do we want our society to look like? Well, they valued households. They thought um, they were well-ordered. It was, a, it was a way that things should go. And so you were assigned marriage roles and this and that based upon the households in which you lived in. And so it never dawned on anyone to violate the teleological ethical way of living. It didn't matter what desires you had. It didn't matter any of that. It was all simply like, well, where are we going? What are we building? Then this is how I should act. It was, it was not self-centered. It was communal-centered. So it was different. Um, and so what am I going to do for a living? What is my vocation going to be? Well, that's going to be based solely upon what our society is going to be and what we need. Um, what about what religion? Well, if we communally have a civic religion together, we all worship the same God in the same way, it creates this connection, this community um, that allows us to have longevity. So, um, so that, uh, that is the world into which we are peering when we read the Bible. Um, and there are different audiences in the Bible who are receiving letters. Some of them have different views on where things are heading. The Jewish people believe this was heading towards um, insurrection and, and the knocking down, the violent overthrow of the Roman Empire and the establishment of the Davidic king. And then you have like the Gnostics and the, the Platonists who their idea is basically, um, again, the body is like an Amazon box and what matters is inside the box, so like the soul. And so the body doesn't matter, the soul matters. So it doesn't matter how you really live or what you do with your body because it can fall apart and it doesn't matter because the goal is to escape. All of these different audiences, there's several of them and they're all being spoken to in the Bible in different ways. And so you will see sort of the, um, their own sort of ethical ideas on display in the text when you read it. Because um, the New Testament is speaking to all these different teleoses. So, we have deontological, we have teleological. What about us? What do we do now? A lot of us tend to just fall back on deontological because it's, it's the water in which we swim. It's the air we breathe. It's all that we know. It's all that we understand. But what about the church? What are we to do? First off, the question we should ask is, what is our task in doing ethics? Is it teleos? Is it deos? I'm going to start off with a, um, a quote by a man named Stanley Hauerwas, where he talks about the early church. Um, he says this, he says, the task of Christian ethics is not to relieve us of ambiguity, but to help us understand rightly what it means to live in the world that we do. That is, to live truthfully in a world without certainty. What does he mean by living truthfully? What does that mean? Well, um, so most people don't live truthfully. Um, they say they believe something, but they don't live it out. For instance, let me point out to you, 
there is a, a McDonald's on the bottom floor of Tampa General Hospital. Did you know this? That is real. There is also, next to that McDonald's, a smoking section. At Tampa, at least there was a few years ago. At Tampa General Hospital. That's a small picture of untruthful living. This is a place of healing. Here's a McDonald's. It's like one feeds the other. It's like a money-making machine. It's crazy. Now, um, if you go up on a grand scale, I could point out things like this. Um, most executions in America happen in the Bible Belt, which votes predominantly pro-life. That is untruthful living. That is unfaithful living. Uh, but it works most of the time deontologically. Because we're law and order people, there's punishments, there's judgment and punishment for crimes. Um, and we disconnect. We're Christians, though, so we're against this and we're for this, and we disconnect that these, are, these actually are both taking a life. Um, let me put out a, a lighthearted one that I read this week. Uh, there was a woman in Lakeland who got arrested for stomping on a nest of goose eggs which you can legally make into an omelet and eat. Right? Like that's, that is untruthful living. Most of the ways in which we live are not truthful. They are not faithful. Living truthfully is not really a virtue in our world. It more has to do with identity uh, and, and deontology. Now, um, I want to talk to you about what's called a narrative ethic. This is what we have in the scriptures. This is what the early Christians were doing. The nature of Christian ethics is determined by the fact that our message is first and foremost a story and a tradition. Something that is passed down from generation to generation. Stories aren't considered at all that important today. Uh, we'd much rather deal with facts. We are children of the Enlightenment. I want to know what the facts are. You tell me what uh, is absolutely true and I will live by that. We want to know facts. But Christianity doesn't actually have an ethic. Christianity is itself an ethic. And here's what I mean. Christianity is such that the story of God cannot be secondary. The story, telling the story of Jesus, isn't secondary to anything else. It is the way that we learn about God. There is no other way really to learn about God in the traditions of Christianity and Judaism other than simply telling the story of God. Um, the story that runs through Israel into Jesus and through the church. Christians don't come to ethical truths by arguing the merits of something based upon teleological or deontological viewpoints. Um, people don't become faithful, allegiant Christians by being told a bunch of facts about God. Christians come to ethical and moral truths by telling the story of God, which runs through Israel and through Jesus. Jesus, who in whom we live and move and have our being. We find our being in the story of Jesus. And I'm going to be slow because I, I want you to wrap your mind around what is happening in the Bible when we talk about this. Most modern people, even Christians, want facts and want, fa want to argue facts. But Jesus is not, is not a fact. He's a person. Um, you cannot know somebody through facts. Yet that is what we want more than anything. What, what happened? Tell me the details. What do I need to do? How am I supposed to live? We want facts. Prove that's true. 
We want facts. But you, you cannot know Jesus through a bunch of facts. You can only know Jesus through the story. You can assemble a bunch of facts about somebody. Like I can tell you, um, I got somebody perfect for you. You should marry her. Really, tell me about her. Uh, brunette, um, brown eyes, um, uh, uh, plays volleyball, um, water skis. Uh, and just a bunch of facts. That is why you should marry her. That doesn't make any sense. Um, that is not how we get to know anybody. You get to know a person through observation, time spent, witnessing responses, seeing them in conversation with yourself and with other people, collecting stories that reveal their character, seeing them in life, in situations, and how they live and what they do. This is how you get to know somebody. Christian ethics are not concerned, and I want you to pay attention to this. Christian ethics are not concerned with thou shalt and thou shalt not. That is not what Christian ethics are about. Christian ethics are about how we envision the world around us. And our vision is shaped by telling the story of God over and over and over. Uh, and as we do this, we ask ourselves the question, is what I'm seeing here, is this what, I, what is happening actually in the world around me? When I read this story, is this a reflection of what I see in the world? The fall, do I see the fallenness it's talking about? Yeah, do I see brokenness? Of course I see brokenness. Do I see people grasping for king after king after king after king, trying to lead us out of our garbage constantly? Yes, right now there is a debate happening right now about two people wanting to be your king. They claim they can lead you out of this thing. And so this is what we do. We want king after king after king to lead us out of this. Um, do you see, when you, when you look at the world around you, do you see what the Bible's talking about when it talks about the, the lack of connections and purpose, the inability of people to remain uncorrupted by power? We are completely incapable of, of remaining uncorrupted by power when it shows itself, and wealth when it shows itself in our lives. We're incapable of doing that. Um, do you see the absolute absence of, of unconditional love in, in, in the world around you? Yes, all of that is present. And we can see it in the scriptures and we see it in the world. And Jesus is only known through telling the story. This is also why we are told about Jesus. I want you to think about this. This is why we are only told about Jesus in the gospels, in story form. If you want to learn about Jesus, you don't flip to Ephesians, you don't flip to Romans, you don't flip to, you don't, you don't flip to, like, you don't flip to 1 Timothy, you don't, these are, these are like instructions for like Christian living um, and, and, and how to sort of, what it means to be the church. If you want to learn about Jesus, you have to specifically go to the four stories at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're stories. There's no list of things about Jesus. You have to read the story to gather information about Jesus. This is on purpose because Jesus wants us to know about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not something that can be known about simply by teaching. That's why when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what does he do? He tells stories. He doesn't tell you specifically what the kingdom of God is. He tells you stories about how it functions, about how it works, and little sort of quips and stories about, about the kingdom. Metaphors, if you will, parables. It had to be, the kingdom of God is something that has to be exemplified in the life of a poor peasant from a poor town called Nazareth if you were ever going to understand it. It's not a concept that can be taught. The kingdom of God is not a concept that can be grasped through somebody telling you about it. The only way it can be grasped is by hearing the story and by joining in and telling the story yourself. 
and living out the story in your body. This is how we understand who Jesus was. Why didn't the Bible just give us long lists of facts about Jesus? It actually, when you read Paul's writings, it's, uh, it becomes very apparent that like, Paul's staying vague about the facts surrounding Jesus' crucifixion or whatever. Like, he's specifically not talking about how Jesus was crucified and the details around it. He wants you to sit under the teaching of the gospel story, the narrative. And so if you ask me who Jesus is, so wait, you're telling me some guy rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Help me, under, help me understand this guy. Okay, Stanley Hauerwas again would say this. You cannot know who Jesus is after the resurrection unless you have learned to follow Jesus during his life. His life and crucifixion are necessary to purge us like his disciples and adversaries had to be lured of false notions about what kind of kingdom Jesus has brought. Only by learning to follow him to Jerusalem, where he becomes subject to the powers of this world, do we learn what the kingdom entails, as well as what kind of Messiah this Jesus is. The Christian itself, Christianity itself, the Christian ethic is Jesus. That is our Christian ethic. That is the ethic by which we live. It is the story of Jesus which we embody in ourselves. And every day we awaken and we live out the story of Jesus while we hear it, while we read it, and while we tell it. We tell it not just with our words and our mouth, we tell it with our life and with our action. Jesus is our ethic. It's not about wants and desires. Our ethic is not about wiring or identity. It is specifically a story that we live out And we are either truthful or we are untruthful in that ethic. Untruthful living is to claim that Christianity itself is the right way and then with your life to live deontologically, to tell the ethics of the world. That is unfaithful living, that is untruthful living. It is plain to see. This is not a controversial statement. Truthful and faithful living is to be formed by the life of Jesus. We call it here at Watermark being Christoform. I didn't invent this term. I learned it from Professor Scott McKnight. Um, Christoform, here's what it means. It means specifically being formed by the life of Christ. As you move throughout your Christian life, this is how your life should be. This is how it should look. You should be formed by the different aspects of the story of Jesus, formed by the incarnation, which means you are being the presence of God in the world where you go. You are becoming Christoform in this way. Uh, You are formed by the teachings of Jesus because you are proclaiming, I spelled proclaiming wrong, proclaiming uh, the new kingdom, I think. Proclaiming the new kingdom. You are formed by the crucifixion. In your life, the crucifixion is lived out. It is acted out. It It is a theatrical performance because you live sacrificially. You are generous with your life. And you read the different aspects of the crucifixion. And when people are literally killing him, He is calling out forgiveness down upon them, not rage and anger and bitterness. When you look at the resurrection, when you read the story of the resurrection of Jesus, we don't just read it. We don't say, I believe that happened. No, we get up and we live it out by restoring the things that are broken. When we read about the reign now of Jesus, the the kingship of Jesus, how he is our king, we live this out by having allegiance solely to Jesus alone. This is Christian ethics. Christianity, again, doesn't have an ethic. 
It is an ethic. The question that we ask is not, is, not um, is this right or wrong? The question that we ask is, is this Christ-like? What should I do in any given moment is determined by the fact that I am right now actively living out the story of Jesus. In this very moment, I am playing the part of Christ. And I am a part of this story that is playing forward, that always has, that there has always been a faithful community maintaining the presence of Christ. Yes, it gets off, it gets messed up, we get wrapped up in earthly empires and we worship terrible fathers and we follow bad kings. But you know what? That never has the last word. That is the story of Israel. They commit idolatry and they go into exile. We, 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 we commit idolatry again we get power, and then we end up in exile again. You will see it many times in your life. Pay attention to it. Christianity is an ethic. Christian ethics, by the way, is for Christians. <laughs> That's who it is for. It's not for everyone. It's for the church. The people, who God, uh, the people of God who have been formed by the story of Jesus. It is not coercive. It is not coercive in any way. If we coerce our ethic on the world through violence, through force, as we have attempted to do in the past and some are attempting to do now, if we do that, we have ceased telling the story of Christ and we have begun to tell the story of, I don't know, Constantine. And some would argue that's a good thing. I would not. The story of Constantine is not the story of Jesus. That is a separate story altogether. What am I to do in every ethical moment, decision that I have to make, what I am to do is to live out the story of Jesus in my body. And so, I'm going to end with talking about the church now. This has been a long one, but you know what? What's the big deal? What about the church? So the apostles, their mission first and foremost was not ethics. Their mission first and foremost was not about the moral decay of society. It was not about economic systems. It was not about deontological views of the world. It was about establishing churches, small groups of people living out that story together and encouraging each other in that way. And as they did, people were drawn in in the same way that everyone who needed healing all throughout the Gospels was drawn into Jesus. Um, they were a constant, present group of people telling one story, moving through human history with the world alongside them, yet reacting differently to every situation. And this is why I said last week that we have to learn to be an apocalyptic people. If you don't understand what that is, with that reference, go back to last week and listen to that. We are an apocalyptic community, a community who has seen the truth. It has been unveiled. And we can no longer follow what they're following. We can't do it anymore. Because our job is to be the church, to make the kingdom visible. It's no longer an idea. The kingdom is not an idea. If people ask, what is the kingdom of God? The only answer is to gather our little group, our small little church of about 500 people and live it out. That is our response. That is our answer to who was Jesus? What is the kingdom of God? Well, spend time with us. Hopefully, 
you will fully grasp it. I hope. If not, we have been unfaithful. Our goal is to be a Christiform community. That is what this is all about. And I hope all this time apart has given us a sense of what this means, of how we are to be the church. And I hope that somehow, when we come back together, we tell the story of God in ways that we have never been able to before. That any lethargy we had picked up sort of fades away and falls away. That is my hope and that is my prayer. And so I want to end this morning uh, with prayer and then we'll jump together into our collect prayer together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything you were doing. Thank you for being present with us. I pray that you would be manifest, embodied in us, individually, communally, and visibly for the world. I pray that your story would be told in every moment, in every interaction, in every quandary about how we should respond to something. May we, instead of trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, may we simply do the Christ-like thing. May we simply live out your story. Not even giving it a second thought just be you, the faithful presence of Christ in the world. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Whoever's here, if you guys want to stand and join me, and we will say the collect prayer. Why don't we say it nice and loud together, shall we? God, who makes all things new, renew our hearts and minds. Bring us to unity in the Spirit and in faith through your resurrection. May we become a people who attains the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, bringing your kingdom to earth. Amen. Grace and peace, Watermark. Love you all. Miss you. See you soon.